0: Welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance sports training. There's a bit of a history to this episode, Rob. We actually sat down about a week and a half ago to record this episode. We're talking about a few studies from Dr. Ronestad that Rob found and really quite enjoyed. thought they were pretty fascinating. And we read them. We came to the recording to sit down and, and talk about these studies And they're all based on this concept of training at higher than 90% of VO2 max intensity. And I think I was the jerk who walked into the room and went, (laughs) can we make this assumption? And instead of doing any recording, we talked about this for a while and debated it for a bit and then went, well, we need to talk about this and whether you really can base training or say that intervals are more effective because you spend more time at greater than 90% of VO2 max intensity and hence
1: our episode last week episode 251 251 was that conversation yeah so fortunately people don't need to listen to an hours worth of that today i think that we're going to we're going to keep going with this we're going to move forward with the assumption that training at greater than 90% increasing the time that you're spending where your oxygen consumption is higher than 90% of VO2 max. We're moving forward today with that being a worthwhile thing with like you said some really interesting research from Dr. Ronstad.
0: Yep. So I mean to give the 1 minute summary of that that whole conversation we had last week is there is more and more research coming out where instead of doing a 5 week or a 10 week intervention to see the gains that you get from different interval protocols. They're basically saying, let's compare intervals by just having the athletes do a single session and we'll see which intervals produce more time. And so I'm just going to call it time at VO2 max, but the full is greater than or equal to 90% of VO2 max. But the more time you spend at VO2 max, the better the intervals is the assumption here. And we debated that. I'm a little more on the, I don't think we can make that assumption alone and use that as the pure basis to say these intervals are better than those intervals. We'll call that the curmudgeony end of the spectrum. I'm always the curmudgeony end of the spectrum. You've seen my bike. <laughs> sure have. Yes, I have. <laughs> so I I'm, don't fully feel you can make that assumption, but I am going to say, yes, it has been demonstrated that doing work at VO2 max intensity has a lot of gains. So if you can demonstrate that you're you're maximizing that particular adaptation or that particular stimulus for adaptation, you've got a good quality interval. Perfect.
1: I'm glad that we agree on that underlying principle because the research we're talking about today, Trevor, there's some maybe non-traditional ways of affecting, of altering your training that in some regard anybody can do but at the same time may or may not be very practical. So I'm looking forward to diving into it. Let's face it, endurance athletes can be a quirky bunch and they're not always the easiest to work with. In module nine of our Craft of Coaching series, Joe Friel shares the secrets of his 40-year coaching career that'll help you overcome challenges, establish good boundaries, and celebrate your success stories. Check out the Craft of Coaching at fasttalklabs.com. So we got three studies.
0: Two, you were kind of hinting at this, get into using vibration plates.
1: Was I hinting at that? A little bit. The first study that we're going to start with is from Dr. Ronstad, and it is titled Increasing Oxygen Uptake in Cross-Country Skiers by Speed Variation in Work Intervals. And this is, if I remember correctly, a 2021 study. So this just came out in the fall of last year.
0: And this gets at a very interesting question that I know we've addressed before. And I actually looked for the episode where we talked about that. Should your intervals be a steady intensity? Or for example, I love my five by five minute intervals. I've seen a lot of protocols where you start a little harder for 30 seconds or a minute and then go to that, that threshold intensity. And whether it was an episode or a video that we did for the website, I ate a little crow in that because I'm still on that, no, just go steady. Don't do that a little bit hard beforehand. And I think you're probably going to make me eat a little more crow today, having read this study.
1: Yeah, Trevor, it's interesting. The content you're talking about is within our interval training pathway, and it's from uh, Dr. Stephen Chung, if I'm remembering the one that you're referring to. And the title of that piece of content is uh, Intensity Changes Between Fast Starts and Steady Intervals with Dr. Stephen Chung. And it's funny that you bring this up because we had a Q&A session, if I remember that right. That might be where I discussed this. Yeah, and and I as well, the coaches that we were talking with were all about the fast start, if I remember correctly. And at the time, I was all about the steady state because it seemed like it would maximize the amount of work that somebody is doing and that you don't necessarily want to begin that interval session with a fast start. But... If we update our thinking based on this 2021 study, that might not quite be true. So Rob. Yes, Trevor. There was a lot in this study. I don't think we need to go into all the details.
0: What was kind of the the take home, the really important message from this study?
1: Yeah, the really important message from this study is that by varying the effort that the skiers were going, they were actually able to elicit a higher oxygen consumption than when the skiers were just doing a constant steady effort right? And so if we think back in the variable efforts, these were skiers who were doing multiple surges throughout each of these five-minute efforts. And those surges were driving the VO2, the oxygen consumption, higher, even though the time between those surges was actually at a lower workload than in the steady condition, right? So the increase from the surge there was not the return back to a lower baseline and we're seeing higher oxygen consumption here right so basically this was kind of a double
0: slap in my face the steady state group saw the least time
1: at vo2 max it did both the decreasing where they started with the fast start and then decreased over time and the variable both of them were higher than the control group. now
0: what's important is both of them started harder The variable group did the over before they did the under. Yep. So that was the one thing that was common about both of them. And what you see when they graph this out is you saw in both of those groups more rapid rise in their VO2, hitting a higher VO2 much more quickly. What's really important about this is they attribute that to potentially those 2A, those fast twitch muscle fibers that can work aerobically having to get involved because you're doing this above threshold intensity and being forced to, to ramp up. So I'm going to use a technical term their they oxidative phosphorylation.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And by involving those higher threshold level, and and I don't mean threshold in terms of the workload, I mean threshold in terms of recruiting these muscle fibers, by including them, getting them more active earlier in the trial, that is where we're really seeing the difference in oxygen consumption here. Because I think what a lot of people don't necessarily understand is, if you, say, put your bike at 400 watts and you go out and you're pedaling hard, it takes a while for your oxygen consumption to ultimately go from that resting state and up toward the maximum steady state workload that you're going to be able to do. And that's where this interval prescription becomes really important because even though you're doing a three, four, five minute long interval, the first two, maybe even three minutes of that you aren't necessarily at a very high amount of oxygen consumption and you're not necessarily challenging or stimulating the adaptation that we're looking to get. Right.
0: You know, I think another benefit or another thing to be aware of with this is again, emphasizing that recruiting those, those two a fibers to work oxidatively. That's really important in my books. I mentioned this in last week's episode and, and I'll, I'll mention this study again, So there's a fantastic study called effects of taper on endurance cycling capacity and single muscle fiber properties where they had high level, I believe it was high level uh, cyclists go through a taper for an event. And then they looked at what physiological changes were we seeing that account for this enhanced ability when they get to that race. Mm -hmm. And the biggest change they saw was in those 2A fibers. They were able to just suddenly work much, much more aerobically. They were able to use oxygen to generate power. So interesting that you're, you're seeing this a little bit with this, this decreasing or with this variable, it seems to potentially be recruiting more fast-twitch 2A fibers. You're getting more of that oxidative phosphorylation with them. So you're getting a little bit of that stimulus to the type 2A fibers that is really essential you want to be on your best, best race form. One of the messages I'm getting from this is doing something like this could be a good type of interval as you're getting closer to an event.
1: Yeah, Trevor, you know, you love to be tapering for your events and ramping up. You know, for people like me who aren't necessarily training for any one thing in particular, it's not like I'm going to Masters Nationals anytime soon. I have actually been sprinkling this into my training. And in all honesty, they're not easy. I'm not no, going to lie. Not especially now in the off season when my fitness is a little bit low, this is one of those workouts that I got to work out today. I think I'm going to do a variation of this. I'm dreading it, but I'm also looking forward to it because I know it's give me pretty good bang for my buck. Well, I was about to bring that up because that's where I've gotten
0: to is, you know, call it whatever you want. I I like my steady intervals, but I've seen enough research to say there's something to this, but I think, I I wouldn't give this to an athlete in December or January, partially just because they're just getting back into training. And these are hard. This hurts. It's a slap in the face.
1: It really is. Yeah.
0: So I I think the the adjustment I might make is to continue with the steady for the first half of the base season. And then that's the adjustment we make, is let's throw in that 30 seconds to a minute harder. So if you're doing a five-minute interval, maybe 30 seconds harder, and then you do the four and a half minutes normally. Yeah. Something like that.
1: In in here, this particular research, they did three forty second surges at basically your maximal aerobic power within that five minute. I don't necessarily know or think, and maybe this is more research and needs to be done, that that is the perfect way to go about this. And Trevor, I think that you're definitely on to something. The first few times you're doing this, maybe you just start out with that fast start and then you settle in. And then yeah. after a couple of weeks, maybe add in a second surge. And then when your fitness is pretty strong, then you can add in even more surges. Personally, though, and just the way my mind works, I love surgy things in general, even when I'm just doing true threshold work and I'm aiming for ninety to ninety-five percent of my FTP, I oftentimes will throw in some short surges over threshold and then settle back in again. I've always found that to be pretty effective training. Yeah, you're just a surgery guy, Rob. I'm a surgeon <laughs> it's it's one of my strengths, to tell you the truth. So I guess maybe it's because I like training it.
0: So I think one other study, even though this wasn't originally part of this nerd lab, but just worth mentioning. There's a 2021 study by Beltrami called Cardiorespiratory Responses to Constant and Very Low Interval Training Sessions. They basically did the same thing. But in this study, they did it with cyclists and runners. They found pretty much the same results. The only thing that's kind of different worth pointing out in this study is that they saw that the effect was much greater in cyclists than in runners.
1: Interesting. I think that it is worthwhile to point that out. I'm glad that you brought that in because even though it's not a Ronstad study and he's kind of the theme of today, this Ronstad study is specifically about Nordic skiers. And so it's great that we do talk about the fact that in other sport modalities, this is seemingly a worthwhile intervention.
0: Yep. And I'll just read this quickly because they had two potential explanations for why you saw that higher VO2 and you saw greater time at VO2 max with this decreasing protocol. Mm-hmm. So the first one that says, this response has been hypothesized to result from either the relatively higher recruitment of less O2-efficient type 2 fibers. So already talked about that. And then the other one that I found interesting is, the higher lactate during the decremental sessions suggested of lower pH might have facilitated the extraction of O2 by the exercising muscles by decreasing the affinity between hemoglobin and O2 Therefore, promoting higher VO2
1: even without elevated Q. Interesting. So car- Q is cardiac output. Yeah. So a VO2 difference, right? More oxygen is being extracted from the blood and utilized because the hemoglobin doesn't want to hold on to the oxygen quite as strongly because of the acidic environment. Right. That oxyhemoglobin desaturation curve is something that we talked about with Robert Kenefick. I don't remember the number of the episode, but that came up in that episode there too. Yeah. Boy, do we just get nerdy. I know those, <laughs> those things make me happy. You know, Trevor, it's interesting that you mentioned that in this runstad study, they were very similar for the three groups, the control group, the variable group and the decremental group for measures of lactate and yeah. also ventilation and heart rate and workload. It's interesting that they found higher lactate in the study that you referenced before, but I do think it's worth pointing out in this Ronstad study that those measures, heart rate, ventilation, lactate, were all similar because it ultimately means that the skiers weren't necessarily doing more work in any of these, but the oxygen consumption was different. That was a real head-scratcher,
0: and they brought it up in all three studies, the fact that even though oxygen consumption was higher... Yep. Heart rate was not higher. And normally VO2, so your oxygen consumption and heart rate, those lines correlate. If one goes up, the other goes up, up until VO2 max and sure. then things kind of fall apart. But you should, if you're seeing an increase in VO2, see an increase in heart rate. And, oh, really? and they didn't, which is really fascinating.
1: Yeah. And I do think that that's mostly due to the fact that the higher time at greater than 90% of VO2 max was very much about a faster sort of uptake kinetics. The max VO2 during the session was not higher, but you got there quicker. quicker. Yep. And it's just a case of heart rate just couldn't keep up. Exactly, yeah, you know, ventilation, you're, you, you can increase your your oxygen consumption quite rapidly. yeah, heart rate is always slow to respond. <laughs> yeah, one thing before we move on to the next study to point out, you brought up Beltrami. back in 2012, they did a really interesting decremental vo2 max study that I think's worth mentioning. Most, if not all, exercise protocols for vo2 max are incremental protocols. You do a minute here, a minute there, you go up, maybe 30 seconds is each stage until you can't go any harder. But this Beltrami study in 2012, and I'm paraphrasing because it's not in front of me, essentially started subjects at the highest workload, at the maximum speed and grade that they were going to go. And when they were about ready to fall off the back of the treadmill, they just slowed it down a little bit to keep them going longer. So they started with the highest workload, and then they eased it up from there. And they saw a significant increase in VO2 max that the subjects were able to achieve. And if I remember right, the the title of the paper is essentially questioning, is VO2 max really max?
0: Well, I mean, it's a good point. I don't know how many of our listeners have ever gone through a VO2 max test, let alone administered one. But there is something really important when you're administering a VO2 max test, which is you have to come up with a protocol where the subject is going to hit their VO2 max within about 11, 12 minutes. Because if they don't, you've run into an issue that they are going to fatigue from Mm -hmm. the effort and they might stop training before they actually hit that true VO2 max
1: yeah. Trevor, when you had that awesome thought, I came up with the title of the paper and it's, it's great. I love it. Conventional testing methods produce submaximal values of maximum oxygen consumption. Yep. If that doesn't make you want to read this, I don't know what does. <laughs> it's like, this is clickbait. This is 2012 research clickbait, but it, it's worth clicking on because it's a great study.
0: I actually had a bit of a painful experience with this. I was participating in a heart study where they were uh, doing some cycling experiments, it was a, a friend was the lead researcher, and he asked me to be part of it. So I show up, and, and he had a relatively new student administering the VO two max test, and I think this was the first study she had ever worked on. And so she asked me my age, and just goes, "Oh, <laughs> fifty year old." So she picks a VO two max protocol for an <laughs> unfit fifty year old, uh-huh. and I just looked at the protocol. I asked her what the protocol was. She told me, and I'm like you know that I need to hit VO2 max in 12 minutes, right? She's like, yeah, why? And I'm like, that will take me an hour. I mean, like, this,
1: this ain't going to do it. <laughs> Didn't go well. <laughs> she did not adjust the protocol. So it goes. Well, you get your volume training in for the day. Yeah. Hey, Trevor, let's switch gears here for a second. What if I told you we could increase your oxygen consumption? Didn't even need to work harder, Trevor. Don't even need these variable intervals. We can make it easier than that for you. It sounds like you're doing an ad at one o'clock in the morning on the TV shows I watch. All we have to do, Trevor, and there might be an ad for this on those TV shows. All we have to do is vibrate you.
0: Yeah. This is an ad I saw uh, shake weights. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I'm not lying. When I
0: read both of these studies, I was thinking about was sitting there on a bike with a shake weight.
1: <laughs> I love this study. And uh, Dr. Ronstadt has a lot of vibration research that spans everything from oxygen consumption and endurance training to strength training. Part of me wanted to pull those in, but man, it was so, we got so unfocused with too many things to talk about. So we're not covering those today, but let's talk about vibrating cycling platforms.
0: What I found fascinating by this is we've talked many times about marginal gains. This is the let's dive in and see if we can find one of those true marginal gains that most people wouldn't even have thought of. And this Mm -hmm. is do your intervals on a trainer and have the trainer on a vibrating plate so you are vibrating while you're doing your intervals. I want to know who is the person that came up with this idea.
1: Uh, (laughs) 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 They did. They they got a commercial vibrating. And actually, they weren't the people that came up with that, there were two researchers that actually did this before Dr. Ronstad. So he can't claim to fame on on having the idea, but they put essentially, yeah, of commercial grade, and you see these in in health clubs and gyms sometimes, on a commercial grade vibrating platform, they mounted the trainer, they had a compu trainer up there, and they had subjects do five-minute intervals to see what their oxygen consumption was going to be.
0: And I think a, an important clarification to, to make here for anybody listening to this, if you're a relatively new athlete, <laughs> you know if you are not close to your peak, this isn't even something to be thinking about. You're going to see gains from your intervals. I think the whole reason behind this research is you've reached a point with elite, elite endurance athletes where they are very good at absolutely giving intervals their best. They are given a protocol. They could not do them harder, better than they are already doing them. So the goal here is how do we find a way of having allowing them to continue to do the intervals the way they've been doing them, but somehow enhance that adaptive signal?
1: It's a great thing to point out. And it's also something that we discussed in that last episode about time above 90% of VO2 max. Recreational athletes don't necessarily need to focus right. there to get a lot of the gains that we're talking about today. Dr. Ronstadt is working with some pretty elite athletes. In this study, it was on cyclists. They were 10 male subjects. Their VO2 max was about 80 ml per kg per minute, and their max aerobic power was 471 watts. So pretty strong in the whole scheme of things. strong riders. Yeah. So in this study, yeah, it was six five-minute efforts. They were able to be self-selected, so they... Their maximum self-selected pace throughout the five minutes, that was not necessarily controlled. And I think it's interesting that they point out that the platform that they were on vibrated at 40 hertz, and I believe it was four millimeters of oscillation. I don't know if that's important or not, but it's what they did. Well, they even brought up, you know since this research is really new, they, they brought up the fact that some
0: of the previous studies used different oscillations. And basically said,
1: don't know if that makes a difference or not.
0: We actually haven't researched this enough. We do not know what the optimal vibration is.
1: Yeah. The other thing that this was different from other research, other researchers put the front wheel of the bike on the plate where the Ronstad group put the back of the trainer on the plate. So it was instead of going up through the tire, it was more into like the frame of the bike in that manner. But ultimately, they all saw the same sort of result. There was the the Spurlich in 2009, Phil and Gary in 2012, and then this Dr. Ronstadt article. All of them had increased oxygen consumption with the vibration. Right.
0: And plenty of explanations of why is that? Why does vibration do that? And I think the one that resonated the most with me, but Rob, interesting, and, and what you took from this, is that vibration is activating more muscle fibers. So, again, you're seeing those those type 2 fibers being activated at an intensity where under normal circumstances they wouldn't be. You also might have a little more upper body recruitment because you're sitting there shaking. It's going to make you hold on to the, the handlebars a little more. And yep. those upper body muscles are going to need a, a little more oxygen. Yep. And then a really interesting one, that again, going with the muscle fibers is the vibration might activate muscle fibers that are fatigued and would normally be shutting down a little bit.
1: Yeah. You know, Trevor, it was was exactly the same thing for me. That's what I really caught on to was we've talked about the activation threshold to get all of these muscle fibers involved. And if you haven't listened to the previous episode yet, that's essentially... As your body works harder and harder, it produces more force by recruiting more and more muscle fibers. And there are some muscle fibers which most of the time are not activated until you're working essentially all out. And the suggestion as to the theory that they have why this is is the vibration is lowering the activation threshold for those muscle fibers. And they're getting involved at a lower than 90% VO2 max, which is the standard that we've been using so far. Now, interestingly, Trevor, they did something unique in this study where they had the subjects do a maximal leg press before and And after to assess if there was any major changes or ultimately reductions in strength in this vibration, and there wasn't necessarily. So it doesn't seem as though it took extra out of the body because of the increased oxygen consumption.
0: Yeah, which was not consistent with some of the earlier studies. There were some vibration studies where they found that the the athletes fatigued quicker. Exactly. But they didn't find that in these studies.
1: And if I remember right, the previous studies where they found they fatigued quicker was doing a set workload for kind of a time to exhaustion, holding, right. say, 400 watts or whatever for as long as you can, subjects were not able to go as long as the vibration occurred. Yeah, and they also brought up that might be a, a factor of the oscillation. It was a different,
0: they were using a different frequency and it could be that some frequencies really do kind of beat you up and and lead you to fatigue. But I can't remember, was this one or the other one or both where they had, I think on both, they were taking EMGs. So it's a measure of the electrical activity in the muscles.
1: Just and, this one, I think.
0: Just this one. And they did find in the vibration protocol, you saw greater EMG activity. So that is the evidence that you're seeing more fiber recruitment because of the
1: vibration. Correct. And there was also a slightly higher maximal lactate, but average lactate throughout the trial was it's essentially the same. the same. Yeah. Now in this trial, just like the first study that we talked about, the major difference, again, seems to not be the the absolute highest VO2 that subjects hit throughout the session, it was how quickly VO2 ramped up at the yes. onset of exercise. Exactly.
0: So these vibration studies are still very new. So the, there's a ton here that we're just kind of hypothesizing. And they even say in the studies, we're, we're still trying to figure this out a lot and what's going on. There's definitely an effect. We're definitely seeing it. But it seems like the vibration is causing a more rapid and, and larger recruitment of muscle fibers. And as muscle fibers get recruited, they have a demand for oxygen. That's going to ramp up VO2. And, and that seems to be where all this is pointing to, what's going on. So you're getting the same effect that you're getting from those those decreasing intervals we were just talking about, where you start with a higher intensity and then go to the steady. But you're getting it without having to do that that harder effort to start.
1: In this study, definitely worth pointing out, rating of perceived exertion didn't change between the two. So right. it's, it's not physical effort. It's not even perceived effort. Granted, RPE was 17 and a half out of 20 on average. These are not easy. easy Don't interval, get me wrong. Right.
0: One things I actually really appreciated here. And again, this is just one of the reasons Rob and I love to jump on Ronestad studies whenever they come out because he really thinks these things through. Mm-hmm. Often they do interval studies where you bring in very inexperienced athletes and any coach can tell you, you have to learn how to do intervals right.
1: Especially in a self-paced like this. Right.
0: So they brought in very high-level cyclists who they know could execute these intervals right. And they even talk about that in the study, that they were willing to let these athletes, because of their experience level, self-paced, because they know that they are experienced enough at intervals that even just doing the protocol once, they're going to land on just the right intensity.
1: Yeah, and... Looking at this, it was six five-minute efforts, two and a half minutes of rest, mean power output, 352 watts for five minutes times six. 30 minutes at 350 watts. Not easy. Stronger than I am, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Hi, listeners. We just launched our new podcast series, Fast Talk Femme. Tune in to hear co-hosts Julie Young and Dee Dee Berry, former pro cyclists and U.S. national teammates, chat with a stellar lineup of experts to explore female physiology, nutrition, training through pregnancy, and more. Check it out at FastTalkLabs.com. All right, Trevor, we know that if you vary your interval intensity or if you vibrate yourself, you're going to consume more oxygen. What do you think happens? if we combine the two together?
0: I think we're just going to have a, a fun day. This, <laughs> I don't know, Rob. I'm, I'm searching for an your
1: answer for you. You're going to consume more oxygen, Trevor. That's what you're going to do. There is an effect if you take the two of these concepts and put it together, and that is our third study today.
0: So when you asked me that question, I just had this picture in my head because, as I said, I the whole time I was reading these vibration studies, I was just picturing a cyclist sitting there holding a shake
1: weight <laughs> to get their vibrations. The thing that's the, the so, shake so. weight, you have to shake the shake weight though. I thought you just held it in the shakes. No, I don't. Don't you shake it?
0: I've never used a shake weight. I just, I thought they were battery operated and they shake in your hand. I always thought that they
1: were like spring loaded and no, you had to shake no, them back they, and they forth. They, they use a battery. I don't know. I think somebody should weigh in, hit us up on the social, let us know who's right. But
0: but regardless, you, you asked me that question. I was just picturing this poor cyclist holding the shake weight in one hand, having to do this 30 second above threshold effort and just going, oh my God, what did I volunteer for?
1: They had to sign informed consent for that. Yes, they did. (laughs) So, this was an interesting study. Adding vibration during varied intensity work intervals increases time spent near maximal oxygen uptake in well-trained cyclists. And this was an interesting paper because it was a follow-up to a previous study that was done that saw no improvement by adding vibration. In that study, if I remember right, they added vibration to when the cyclists were already working hard.
0: So if you think of this as an over-under, that study added the vibration during the
1: overs. This study added it during the unders. Exactly. And we know from the first study that the overs, the hard section, are already essentially using all the oxygen you can because we're recruiting all of those muscle fibers and that adding vibration didn't really add anything to that situation.
0: Right. That said, there was another study where they, they had the vibration throughout the intervals and this study where the vibration was just during the unders still didn't produce quite as much VO2 consumption mm-hmm. or time time at vo2 max as when they had
1: the vibration throughout. Sure. So yeah, in this study, they were doing again, five minute work intervals. They were varying between 100% max aerobic power. And then the under was kind of this in between max aerobic power and and FTP. And they did add the vibrations just to that. Trevor, do you remember how long the under periods were? I knew you were going to hit me with a question I wasn't ready for. You, You don't need to. It was 40 seconds over and 60 seconds under. So one minute. So three minutes total out of the five-minute effort. Okay. Had to do the math in my head. (laughs) So results that we saw here, this increased time above 90% of VO2 max, 26%, which I think is a pretty significant amount.
0: Yes, and going back to what we were talking about before when they compared this to where they had the vibration throughout, I think they were seeing an increase around 50%. The mm. number 58 is coming to head, yep. my head, but I'm not seeing it on the page right now. So about half of what you see when they have the vibration throughout.
1: Yep. The other thing to note here, and you had brought this up in in our previous article discussion, there was higher muscle activation in the yep. vibration of this as well. So potentially recruiting the same mechanism, recruiting more of those type 2A fibers. Again, in this study, there were a lot of variables that weren't different between the vibration and the non-vibration trials. There was no difference in heart rate. There was no difference at time greater than 90% of heart rate max. Interesting. VO2 max time above was higher. There was no change in ventilation, so how much air people are moving in and out. No change in lactate and no change in leg muscle sensation. They had sensational leg muscles, apparently. (laughs) Nice. I mean, that's
0: what I found the, the most interesting in these vibration studies, that they throw out some theories of why it might be, but they, they haven't definitively said, here is the reason. But you see in both of these studies and in some of the previous studies, this disassociation between VO2 and heart rate which is not something you normally see. So I'm really fascinated on why that is. What is the physiological explanation behind that? I think once they they prove that definitively, I think we're gonna get some interesting insights into how the body works. We had a chance to talk with Dr. Ronestad about these three studies. Let's hear from him about why he chose to do studies on vibration plates and also his thoughts on why we saw a rise in VO2, but didn't see a rise in heart rate we talked about two of your recent studies that looked at putting cyclists on vibration plates, which are really interesting. So two quick questions about those studies is one, what motivated you to, to look into vibration plate effects on, on training. And then the, the thing I found really fascinating was that you saw this rise in VO2 without a rise in heart rate. And normally those two are in sync. And, and so I've been really fascinated by what you think the explanation is behind how VO2 could rise without a concurrent rise in heart rate?
2: Yeah, originally I started research on vibration platforms uh, when I was a student and I was working in a gym uh, and we got a, we got a vibration platform and I was sure this is just rubbish. So I just want to do a study to show that it's not working. So this was like 20 years ago and I'm still <laughs> within this mm. uh, every now and then. So for mounting. thing, uh, bike on a vibration platform the idea was partly due to we we observed that it seems to increase the emg activity when we are vibrating at least we, we observed it so then maybe we could uh, increase the stimulus to the rider if they're vibrating and that's what we did then we the first approach was performing some 5 minutes intervals with with maximal effort across all intervals and then um, we saw that it was a higher Bo2 mean bo2 with vibrations compared to without uh, but the, the power output was similar and the heart rate as you say was similar so whether it was uh increased muscle activation due to the vibration inducing some increased muscle spinal activation and, and thereby increased the excitatory inflow but you could argue that okay then the, the heart rate should kind of follow
0: right but it didn't do no. <laughs> you have any thoughts on, on why? Because I mean, I'd always been taught that the biggest stimulus when you're exercising of heart rate is, is fiber recruitment. So mm-hmm. if you're seeing higher EMG activity, you should see a higher heart rate.
2: Yeah, I agree. But what we have seen in some of these acute studies as well is that it's not always that you can have a higher time about 90% of you to max, but there is no difference in mean heart rate. But in some cases, we see a higher heart rate, but not in all studies. So um, the reason to that, I'm not quite sure, but uh, but it seems like it's not at least always a certain relationship between the heart rate and, and the VO2.
1: The other thing, if we're sort of hypothesizing here, that's interesting to me is VO2 max is oftentimes thought of as a centrally limited factor. And the definitive studies that suggest that essentially exercise one muscle in isolation and its ability to uptake oxygen when it's the only one, meaning the entire cardiac output is being sent to that one muscle group, that local muscle is able to extract and utilize more oxygen than when the entire body is working. So it's interesting that we are seeing something that's happening in the periphery increasing VO2 max because As far as I know, none of this should be changing any of the cardiac output factors.
0: We're going to get into a little bit of the physiology, but this is called a nerd lab, so this is where we get our our time to talk about this. And we discussed this in the previous episode. There's two ways to increase VO2 max, or basically to increase the the volume of oxygen uh, that's being consumed. One is cardiac
1: output, but... It's hard to change cardiac output.
0: It's hard to change cardiac. In this case... You know, over time, the way you improve your cardiac output is is stroke volume. But in a particular workout, you know, you're you're not going to see a training effect on stroke volume. So the way you increase cardiac output is is heart rate going up and down. And since heart rate didn't go up and down, we can assume that during these intervals, cardiac output didn't really change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so if you're diffusing more blood to more capillaries you'd have to see an increase in cardiac output. You'd have to see that increase in heart rate. So this goes back to what we were talking about before. And I'm just thinking out loud here is this increase in VO2, I think had to be, as you said, at, at the muscle level, it was taking more oxygen out of the blood as it passed by.
1: Yeah. This last Ronstad study, and I don't think it was mentioned in any of the other ones, did question whether there was a redistribution of the cardiac output. Right, Because even though yep. our quads and our calves and our glutes are working really hard when we're cycling, we still are pumping blood to our brain, to the rest of our body, to our arms, to our back muscles. Was the body able to redistribute that away from some of the non-working muscles to the working leg muscles? It'd be interesting if vibration was able to do that, to to show a localized area yep. needs more blood flow than it otherwise would have gotten. Because you're working in an otherwise maximal sense. You should be supplying those muscles with all the blood they're able to get.
0: To me, this is really fascinating because I'm actually going you know, on a quick tangent here. I was listening to an online conference that Dr. Silo was part of mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. And what I loved is at the end of the conference, and, and you know, this was all big names. So I think there were, there were five guests there, and you've heard of every single one of them. And the host at the very end asked a physiology question that hasn't been answered yet because, you know, and that was why he was asking it. He wanted to see what these top experts thought about this. And you kind of see them scratching their head and kind of feeling the waters and saying, well, maybe this, maybe that. And I actually really appreciated Dr. Seiler's response. He started by saying, you know, we have to be a little bit humble here. And remember, there's probably more that we don't know about human physiology mm-hmm. than we do know. Yep. And he said, I think this is one of those, and I'm, I'm shortening what he said, but he basically, I think this is one of those cases where we don't have that knowledge yet. And when I was reading these and seeing that, again, that, that disassociation and how are we increasing VO2 without increasing cardiac output necessarily, there's something going on physiologically that this might start telling us things about the body that we didn't know yet that to me is is really exciting. And I think this is how we're going to finish out the episode is the practical side. Most people aren't going to be able to start doing their intervals on a vibration plate, nor would I recommend people invest the money for that.
1: Well, yeah, that is one thing I do know because I looked it up immediately after and commercial grade vibration plates like are used in this study are thousands upon thousands of dollars. Yeah. So I think we're going to expense one of those. Don't worry about it, Trevor. It'll be It'll be useful, I promise. There are definitely $100 vibration plates on Amazon. I don't know if you're going to get the same effect, though, or not. The experimenter in me really wants to buy one and try it out. Tell you the truth. We have the Parvo Metabolic Cart in the room next door. Maybe we can do a little Fast Talk Labs bro science here if you want. Oh, if I see our Metabolic Cart on a vibration plate. (laughs) No, the cart doesn't go on the plate. I go on the plate. Yes, I get that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do think the practical side of this is important, right? The variable intensity intervals, that's something that we can do practically. Anyone today can go out and update their workout to include variable VO2 max level intervals.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree with that. And that's kind of my recommendation. But I'm going to repeat what I said before. I don't think this is an all-the-time thing. Getting those fast-twitch 2A fibers to work aerobically yeah, you know, and I don't have enough evidence, enough research behind this to say this definitively. So this is as much just you know my my belief as absolutely backed by science. But I don't think the two a fibers like to work aerobically nonstop. You do see over time conversion of fast twitch to actual slow twitch muscle fibers that becomes permanent. And that was debated for a long time, but that was eventually resolved. And they show, yeah, you can see that long-term conversion. So this is the short-term, hey, we're doing a ton of aerobic work, so let's get these fast-twitch muscle fibers to act like slow-twitch muscle fibers. But I don't think they really like doing that for too long. And so it's always been my belief as a coach that once you start getting them to work aerobically or to act really oxidatively, they're on a time limit. And that's that point where you get to in the season where you start saying, I start, I'm feeling stale. I'm starting to feel a little overreached. And you just kind of have to say, I have to take a really long break or the season's over. Because you have those adaptations like that, that are really good for eight weeks, 12 weeks, whatever it is, but just not something you can maintain indefinitely. So for me, I wouldn't want to do this in January or December, way before the season for the athlete. And get them to really start working those, getting those two a fibers to work aerobically that early on. This is something that I, I would introduce closer to the season. Is that your
1: recommendation, Trevor, for any workout that targets VO two max level intensities like a like a five by five maximal? Would you be doing those with your athletes really early in the season?
0: So, and this gets into coaching style, and I've been coming a little more on board with that of doing a little bit of the high intensity in in, December, January. I used to be pretty religious about this. No, myself and my athletes, we didn't do anything above threshold until we were getting closer to the season. So that's something that we would introduce in February. I'm coming a little more on board of their benefits to this. And one of the biggest benefits, and this comes out of a, a great interview that we did with Dean Golich, of doing that little bit of intensity also, gets some of the painkillers flowing. Mm, yep. Gets some of the neuromuscular side working. And what you can see then is then when you do your threshold work, which is what I love to do in the base season, you can actually do that harder. And I actually tried this this year with myself and one of my athletes. And we saw that the power that both of us were putting out in our thresholds when we started them in December after doing a few weeks of not a really hard workout. I, I just had them do one set of 30 30s. Mm-hmm. So, six. Six minutes of 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off, and also a couple short 10-second sprints. So we did that for a couple weeks, and then we went back to the traditional five-by-five thresholds. And I remember him going, oh, my God, I've never put out this sort of power in December. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to do so much high-intensity that you start getting that conversion. You start seeing what what I would call race form adaptations, which, again, I think are on a timer.
1: Yeah, I think I agree with you in if I was adding intervals in beginning of the year, my max aerobic power capacities were a little bit lower. I'm really still trying to build that early fitness. I don't know that I would go to these variable intensity intervals straight out the gate, to tell you the truth. Definitely something to always keep the body guessing, you know, uh, changing things up a little bit, prevent it from getting stale, working them in a little bit later. Once you're at that point where you're physically able to handle Mm -hmm this really difficult work and in the few times i have experimented with them i know in the studies it said that rating a perceived exertion was very similar between the two but we do have to remember we're talking highly trained you know, individuals doing this and what i found is when my fitness wasn't good enough the over the surges made it really hard to then back off and still maintain a workload that otherwise kept my VO2 and, and my workload elevated enough, to tell you the truth. And so even though in these studies, the workload was the same between the two, it almost felt like because of the surges, my average workload in the surgery workout was lower than it would have been right. had I gone constant because I just physically wasn't able to do it at that point. Right.
0: Well, that I mean, I think that's as much mental as anything else. Sure. You get used to something. And so it's the comparison. Yep. Like, for example, last night, I did a, a set of um, my cadence pyramids where you do a minute at 100 RPM, then a minute at 110, you go all the way up to 130, and you come back down. Mm-hmm. And last night, my legs were just feeling like lead bricks. So yep. when I hit that one minute of 100 RPM, I could barely do it. Yep. I'm like, oh, my God, this is hard. Yep. But I was just like, no, I'm getting through this cadence pyramid and force myself through. The 130 was miserable. Yep. But by the time I came back down to the 100, I'm like, this is so slow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and that's the principle. The latest workout of the week I think that I published was over unders. And I sort of referenced that in if you just go out and do ninety to ninety five percent of threshold, it feels kind of hard. Yep. But if you do a surge over threshold and settle back in at 90 to 95, suddenly it begins to feel like recovery and you associate a pretty hard workload with something that ought to feel easy. And I think performance wise, mentally that makes a big difference for me that I feel a lot more comfortable sitting in at that workload. Yep. And that actually gets to another thing that I've switched. You know, they always
0: say that uh, people kind of mellow out as they get older. I used to be so religious about all these things, and I'm kind of mellowing out on some of these things now. But another thing I used to be religious about was not doing efforts as a warm-up to intervals. My argument was, why are you doing intervals to get ready for intervals? Mm -hmm. Just do the intervals. You know, warm-up for a race because you got to perform in the race. So I, I would you know, do time before intervals. I, I would do some cadence works before intervals, but I wouldn't put in a lot of efforts, but I have noticed same sort of thing. Let's say I'm doing five by five minute thresholds. Mm-hmm. I've always actually found that the first one is the hardest mm-hmm. because it's, Oh God, you got to get the legs yeah. moving. Yep. And so I have more and more brought in just a couple, you know, it's not a ton, yep. just a couple sprint efforts. And he said, it's just that contrast that wakes your legs up. You go, hey, that was really hard. Yeah. By contrast, this just isn't as hard. Yeah.
1: Well, hey, it's like everybody dips their toe in the pool before they jump in. But for all intents and purposes, you might as well just do the cannonball. <laughs> Good quote to wrap it up with. I think we ended there, Rob. Perfect. Thanks, Trevor. Great conversation today. I enjoyed that. Thank you. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com or tweet at us at at Fast Talk Labs. Head to fasttalklabs.com to get access to our endurance sports knowledge base, coach continuing education, as well as our in-person and remote athlete services. For Trevor Connor and our quasi-guest of the day, Dr.
2: Bent Ronstad, I'm Rob Pickles. Thanks for listening.